my teenage daughter, this is the question I was dealing with. My teenage daughter has admitted having sexual relations with several boys. Since she doesn't believe in God, she can see no reason for doing otherwise. What can I tell her? I said, you might make her aware of the fact that sexual freedom is expensive and most of the bills are paid by women. The natural sex appeal of girls serves as their primary source of bargaining power in the game of life. In exchange for her feminine affection and love, a man accepts a girl as his lifetime responsibility, supplying her needs and caring for her welfare. This sexual aspect of their marital agreement can hardly be denied. Therefore, a girl who indiscriminately gives away her basis for exchange has little left with which to bargain. Your daughter might also be reminded of the other expenses that are sometimes imposed by sexual irresponsibility, including those associated with venereal disease, unwanted pregnancies, and fatherless children. By contrast, the biblical concept of morality offers overwhelming advantages for a woman, even if the matter of right and wrong were of no significance. Through moral behavior, she is likely to achieve self-respect, the respect of society, the love of a husband, and provision for the needs of her children. The current move toward common law marriages, unmarried couples living as man and wife, offers no legal protection and no security for the wife involved. Wife in quotation marks. Similarly, the new morality is a tragic imposition on the female sex. Women satisfy the desires of males while assuming the full responsibilities, risks, and consequences themselves. Then when their youth begins to fade, as inevitably it does, they will find little sympathy from the men who have exploited them. Well, hello, everyone. I'm James Dobson, and you're listening to Family Talk, a listener-supported ministry. In fact, thank you so much for being part of that support for James Dobson Family Institute. Welcome back to Family Talk. I'm Roger Marsh. As we make our way through this first month of the new year, we hope and pray that you are healthy, happy, and remaining connected to God, anchored in your faith, and in fact, practicing your faith in the public square as well as in your community. We pray that you can do this in the midst of an ever-changing culture and serve as a godly model for others. In that spirit, we present to you part one of a classic conversation between our host and founder, Dr. James Dobson, and his guest, renowned author and economist George Gilder. We have entitled today's and tomorrow's programs, Men and Marriage, and that, my friends, is exactly what they will be discussing. Together, these two men unpack some long-term hot-button issues, such as the downside of the 1970s feminist movement and the assault on biblical truths. That assault includes the attack by culture on masculinity and a beatdown on traditional roles inside and outside of the home. George Gilder will also explain to Dr. Dobson some of the economic factors at play for both men and women that affect the institutions of marriage and the family. They also examine the misconceptions and disappointments women experience with the career first and family second notions of today's society. There is so much to cover, but first, allow me to tell you a little bit more about George Gilder. He was born in 1939. That would make him 83 today. He grew up in New York and Massachusetts. 
Tragically, his father was killed flying in the service in the United States Armed Forces during World War II when Gilder was only two years old. George Gilder attended Phillips Exeter Academy and Harvard University, graduating in 1962. He later returned to Harvard as a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics and edited the Ripon Forum, the newspaper of the liberal Republican Ripon Society. Gilder also served in the United States Marine Corps. He has lectured internationally on economics, technology, education, and social theory. He has also addressed audiences everywhere, from Washington, D.C. to the Vatican, and he has appeared at conferences, public policy events, and on media outlets. He's the author of several seminal books, including Men and Marriage, first published in 1986. Also, Wealth and Poverty, released in 2012. Now, let's listen to part one of this classic Dr. Dobson conversation. I think you'll find it fascinating, right here on today's edition of Family Talk. There are a few writers in this country that I think stand head and shoulders above the rest of us, and one of the most brilliant is with us today. I'm not trying to patronize him, but I tell you, I have read his works for years and have been so impressed with his ability to analyze the family in the context of society, among other subjects that he writes about. It is indeed an honor to have with us today George Gilder. Welcome, George. It's exciting to be here. Back in the early 1970s, my father used to do a lot of research for me. I was on the faculty of USC School of Medicine at the time and was extremely busy, had my hands full, and this whole subject of the family was so important to me, but I was in a research uh, responsibility and a teaching responsibility. And uh, I used to call my dad and ask him to read books that had come out for me that were uh, important to me, but I didn't have time to get to. And you're Your book, Sexual Suicide, was one of those books. I made a phone call to him, and I said, Dad, there's a book out you got to help me with. And uh, he read Sexual Suicide, and he sent me a complete analysis of the book, an outline of the whole book, with the most glowing comments. He said, you must read this book. Mm -hmm. That was my introduction to you back in, I guess, 1973? Is that when the book came out? About that, yeah. Ah. And uh, I have quoted you and talked about your perspectives ever since then. For the benefit of those in our listening audience who are not that familiar with George Gilder, uh, let me go on with uh, his introduction. Uh, He wrote other books entitled uh, Naked Nomads, uh, Visible Man, The Spirit of Enterprise, and uh, perhaps his most well-known book, Wealth and Poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a graduate of Harvard University. On uh, August 15th, 1986, uh, Mr. Gilder was one of 11 persons honored at the White House by President Reagan for their entrepreneurial excellence. Uh, George Gilder is married to the former Cornelia Brooke. They and their four children live on a farm in Tearingham. Is that correct? That's Tearingham. correct. That's Tearingham. the easier half. Here comes this word, <laughs> Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, I did it. I have great trouble uh, saying that word. George, I am uh, delighted to have you here. Now, I want to go back to 1973 and your book, Sexual Suicide, because your new book, Men and Marriage, is kind of an update or a... Uh, more recent uh, analysis of the same material that you right. talked about then. That was a very controversial book in 1973, wasn't it? Right. Uh, it was uh, introduced in Harper's Magazine and provoked more letters than virtually any other article ever in the huh. magazine. A lot it's of a, anger, too. A lot of anger. Just rage. Uh, 
was expressed. The feminist movement was riding high at the time. Uh, every new major book mm. that uh, they uh, introduced, from Kate Millett's Sexual Politics to Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, immediately soared to the top of mm -hmm. all the bestseller lists. It was a time when feminism was almost completely dominant in sort of intellectual circles in the United States. It That's was a right. pseudo-religion, one of these uh, manias that uh, arise in a secular society when it uh, uh, loses contact with God, really. I mean, it's, uh, it's a secular religion. Now, have things changed that much? Uh, your book, uh, Men and Marriage, hasn't been out too long. I saw a review of Men and Marriage the other day in the L.A. Times. It was written by a feminist, and it began with the words, Oh, George, you brute. So here we go again, it looks like. Uh, right, here we go again. It, it is, uh, that's the kind of reviews I've been getting, sensitive reviews of that <laughs> kind. In 1973, the very title, Sexual Suicide, had ominous implications for the society, uh, dire consequences mm -hmm. that might uh, fall upon us if we continued uh, as we were going, especially for the family. And most of those uh, predictions or those statements have been almost a prophecy now, haven't right. they? Right. Only about 52 percent of Americans are in families today, or families with children. There's been a real decline and an outbreak of divorce and female-headed families. <clears throat> Let's uh, quickly move to the theme of sexual suicide and now men in marriage, because the theme is the same. The explanation and the illustrations are updated in the new book. But uh, the theme concerns what happens when a society denies or ignores male aggressiveness and the male temperament and att attempts to suppress it and how that influences the family. Explain the basic concept. One way of putting it is that every generation the society is, suffers, all societies suffer an invasion by barbarians. And these bi barbarians are young men, single men. And uh, young men have to be domesticated in some sense, channeled into constructive roles in order to contribute to the society. And the way young men get converted into productive citizens most of the time is through marriage. Uh, through marriage, they get linked to specific children. And the responsibility for specific children through marriage ties men to the future and gives them the kind of long time horizons, the sense of that their role in the world is important and uh, that their moral behavior is critical. It's uh, marriage that really uh, brings that home to men. And uh, single men, uh, by contrast, are, commit virtually all the major violent crimes in the society. They're overwhelmingly prone to alcoholism and mental diseases and psychological disorders. All afflict single men at a rate far above uh, married men. As a matter That's fact, not that, to say that all single men have those problems. Oh, of but course But the not. incidence is much higher oh, among much higher. single men. That's right. But yeah. Of course. Uh, I'm talking in broad sociological yes. generalities, but that's how a society works. You know, mm -hmm. there are, of course, exceptions and extraordinary people in all sorts of situations. 
But uh, what determines whether a society is peaceful and productive is the extent to which the aggressiveness of young men is channeled into productive purposes. Hmm. And uh, by and large, it's marriage and family that uh, disciplines this natural aggressions of young men and turns them into uh, the provider role. There is uh, another subject I wish we had time to deal with in, in greater depth because it relates to the, the kind of ominous prophecy uh, originally stated in Sexual Suicide in 1973. Uh, you were really talking about the possible death of a civilization and, and a complete change of social order that might grow out of our attempts to contradict who we are biologically as men and women. We are now seeing the fulfillment of some of that, as I said a little earlier, in that uh, we're below zero population growth in the United States, I believe in Canada, and seriously below it in Western Europe. Uh, By that I mean we're not producing enough babies to replace the people who die. And when you have a culture that's not at least replacing itself, you have a declining culture. We get used to everything growing. My business is bigger this year than last year. What does it do to a society when you get into that below ZPG, as they call it, and everything is declining instead of perpetuating itself? Well, rather than a spiral of growth, you get a vicious circle of decline. And you get typically a steadily rising portion of the population being elderly beyond the workforce, and you get the burden of supporting those older people falling on an ever smaller group of working citizens. This means tax rates have to rise on the remaining workers. Workers tend to withdraw from the workforce. They tend to work less. So the remaining workers find themselves facing still greater burdens to support a steadily rising number of older people in their retirements. In the end, you get a real collapse of the society, such as I'm afraid is coming in Western Europe, where as much as 50 percent below the replacement level. And of course, being 50 percent below the replacement level means that in four or five generations, you're virtually uh, not reproducing the society at all. 50% times 50% is 25%, 12%, 6%, 3% of the replacement level within five generations. And it's just, it's, it's sexual suicide. And that is what's happening in the welfare states of Europe. Thanks for spending some time with us. You're listening to Family Talk, a radio broadcast of the James Dobson Family Institute. I'm Dr. Tim Clinton, co-host here at Family Talk, and we've come to the midpoint of today's broadcast. On behalf of Dr. Dobson and all of us here at JDFI, I want to thank you for listening today and, by the way, for your continued support. We're completely supported by you, our faithful listeners. We would not be able to bring programs to you like the one you're listening to today without your generous contributions. Learn how you can stand with us by visiting drjamesdobson.org. Let's get back to today's broadcast right now here on Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. In my film series, Turn Your Heart Toward Home, in the first film, I said children are the future, and without children, 
there is no springtime. There is no freshness. There is no newness. There is no color. There is no vigor. There is no energy of youth. And no way to the Lord. That's right. That's right. Just an aging, selfish, dying culture feeding on its own self-interest and congratulating itself for not being distracted by these little children around our feet who would take so much of our time and energy. Uh, That's a very short-sighted view, isn't it? It certainly is. Uh, George, in terms of raising children, boys and girls, to understand their appropriate sex role identity, uh, I've done some programs on that. It's kind of hard to get a handle on it when you start talking specifically about how you raise a boy to be masculine and how you raise a girl to be feminine without being rigid. Uh, you get down to to specifics like washing dishes versus mowing lawns, and you mm-hmm. get into trouble with that. Do uh, you have any advice for parents in how to, to make those sex roles clear without being rigid in terms of things that are really kind of cultural and kind of silly? Sure. Well, just be clear in your own mind what your role is and what the mother's role is. I mean, if the father's role as leader of the family is clear and the mother's role as the central moral leader in the raising of children is evident and and the two roles are manifest, then uh, the children will naturally uh, follow them. And uh, these conflicts just won't arise. So you model it. You it's, model it's it. It's not yeah. in rigidity in the activities or work or, or words or other things, but it is something that almost defies uh, definition. Yeah, it defies definition, but these definitions will emerge spontaneously unless you make a deliberate effort to confuse yes. them. Uh-huh. I mean, boys will be boys and girls will be girls most of the time, and you needn't worry desperately if uh, the roles get... Uh, confused for brief periods during the lives of either boys or girls. If the family structure is firm, the ultimate identification of the boy and the girl will indeed be firm. In a book called The Brain, I've forgotten the authors, uh, an excellent book on brain research and the differences between males and females. They talk about how they are different from so early in life. You go to a picnic or a birthday party for five-year-olds, The little boys will already be very, very different from the little girls. It's the boys that are throwing cake and are putting their hand in the punch bowl and things of that nature. It's that aggressiveness you're talking about. And uh, the feminists would say it's trained into them. How come it's trained into them in every society around the face of the globe? And in history. I mean, it's just just another of these illusions, a utopian refusal to face the facts of life. While we're talking about uh, children uh, and teenagers, George, I want to go back to my book, Dare to Discipline. And uh, in fact, I've been kind of embarrassed by my answer to this question because it sounds like 1970 or 71. And and yet, uh, in the context of today's discussion, it sounds like it fits pretty well. See what you think. My teenage daughter, this is the question I was dealing with. My teenage daughter has admitted having sexual relations with several boys. Since she doesn't believe in God, she can see no reason for doing otherwise. What can I tell her? I said, you might make her aware of the fact that sexual freedom is expensive and most of the bills are paid by women. 
The natural sex appeal of girls serves as their primary source of bargaining power in the game of life. In exchange for her feminine affection and love, a man accepts a girl as his lifetime responsibility, supplying her needs and caring for her welfare. This sexual aspect of their marital agreement can hardly be denied. Therefore, a girl who indiscriminately gives away her basis for exchange has little left with which to bargain. Your daughter might also be reminded of the other expenses that are sometimes imposed by sexual irresponsibility, including those associated with venereal disease, unwanted pregnancies, and fatherless children. By contrast, the biblical concept of morality offers overwhelming advantages for a woman, even if the matter of right and wrong were of no significance. Through moral behavior, she is likely to achieve self-respect, the respect of society, the love of a husband, and provision for the needs of her children. The current move toward common law marriages, unmarried couples living as man and wife, offers no legal protection and no security for the wife involved. Wife in quotation marks. Similarly, the new morality is a tragic imposition on the female sex. Women satisfy the desires of males while assuming the full responsibilities, risks, and consequences themselves. Then when their youth begins to fade, as inevitably it does, they will find little sympathy from the men who have exploited them. Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like I was fishing for a compliment, but I I mean it. I've thought about taking that uh, paragraph out because it sounds chauvinistic in the context of what the feminists have made us conscious well, of in the last 15 years. It's entirely true. I mean, it's, it's just a, a statement of the facts of life. Uh, sexual liberation liberates men to exploit women. And uh, the feminists claim that liberation somehow affirms and exalts women, but the opposite is the case. It liberates men in the typical pattern to uh, leave their wives as they grow older and marry their secretaries. That's the typical pattern of sexual liberation. Mm -hmm. Powerful men get to take the marriageable years of more than one young woman. And uh, this is a dream of men in all societies, and it's only societies where morality breaks down, where the rules of monogamy collapse, where men can have harems or a succession of young women uh, in their lives. And uh, this is the terrible joke of sexual liberation. It's, a, it's not a joke, it's a, it's tragedy. a tragedy. So monogamy and the stability of a particular culture are linked in every context around the world. This is not a Western concept. No. This is worldwide. This is worldwide. Primitive and civilized. That's right. Well, this concludes part one of our two-part interview, a classic conversation between Dr. Dobson and his guest from back in the day, George Gilder. We present to you part two of a classic conversation between our host and founder, Dr. James Dobson, and his guest, author and economist George Gilder. 
We have entitled both yesterday's and today's programs, Men and Marriage, and that's exactly what these men have been discussing. Together, they've been unpacking some long-term hot-button issues, like the downside of the feminist movement and the assault on biblical truth in the public square. That assault includes the attack by secular culture on masculinity and media-inspired confusion on traditional male and female and husband and wife roles inside and outside of the home, coming from a secular and subversive agenda. George Gilder also explains to Dr. Dobson some of the governmental, medical, and societal factors at play for both men and women that affect the institutions of marriage and the family. They'll be tackling everything from poverty to race and the divine ordination for the uniqueness of the male and female creation and makeup. In fact, George Gilder will share what prevents new couples from achieving the marital success and realization of God's true plan for them. This includes what he calls pure media fantasy. George, the, uh, the man who does not have a family then, how does he see life differently than the married man with responsibility for a family? Uh, describe the plight of the modern unmarried man. He is disconnected from future generations. He's disconnected from the biological fabric of life, children leading on into the future. Man's link to the future passes through the womb of a woman. When that link is broken, he is set adrift, and uh, he is abandoned to his own devices, and and it's a short-term compulsive sex drive. You know, it's just a new argument to uh, lure women into bed. Short-term goals and short-term satisfaction, which mitigates against the stability of the culture. That right. that's, that's essentially right. your theme. That's right. Ah. The essence of it is what, George, you said in, in Men and Marriage, that uh, the woman's contribution to the culture, to civilization, to the continuity of the race right. is secure. It's defined by biology. She is the producer of the next generation. Uh, now, with artificial insemination, we don't even need sexual intercourse for it to happen. Mm-hmm. The man's role is minimal. Her role is defined. Her role is secure. Her importance is secure. His is uh, manufactured by the culture. Right. He is either given an important role or he doesn't have one. Right. Uh, it, it's, right. it's, not, it's not defined biologically. It's defined culturally. I, yeah. I'm not yeah. saying The way Margaret well, Mead put it is that uh, motherhood is a biological fact. Fatherhood is a social invention. You know, there are many societies anthropologically where the role of the father, where paternity is not even acknowledged. Uh, Fatherhood has to be enforced by society. All right. If that society cuts him out, if government pays the bills and leaves him with no protector and provider role, if they live in a government housing project where when it needs painting, uh, the man doesn't do it, the government man comes in and paints or fix the, fixes the screens mm-hmm. or provides a new house and sends the check each month. Uh, he is now defined out of an important role. And all of that energy that would have gone into the building and growing and developing of the family and therefore the culture goes into antisocial behavior where you dare not walk the streets at night. Now, the liberal sociologists will look at that and say poverty causes crime. 
that there is this deep anger because there have nots. Well, there have been have-nots in the past who haven't perpetrated that kind of violence against society. So it's something other than poverty, isn't it? Right. It's, it's a pattern that you can imagine if you try to consider yourself growing up in an inner-city household. Uh, the father is only an occasional visitor in the household a lot of the time. And, and because he's only occasional visitor, his position is insecure. The woman knows that she's not dependent on him for support, so she doesn't respect him fully. And because he's not fully respected, he's often angry, he drinks a lot. And imagine that you're brought up as a teenage girl in that household. A lot of times, uh, liberals say that welfare is insignificant. You know, it's not a major force in these people's lives. But just imagine you're a girl, and the state offers you a way out of all that. It says you can have a room of your own, an apartment of your own, free. You can have several hundred dollars every month, free. Uh, You can have... uh, independence. You can uh, go out into the world and assume adult responsibilities. Be your own boss. Be your own boss, all under one condition. Get pregnant. Get pregnant. If you have an illegitimate child and you do not marry the father, then all this is yours. An apartment of your own, a reliable source of income month after month, position in the community are all yours, provided you don't marry the father of your children. What's happened in uh, the welfare state is that fatherhood has been made illegitimate. (laughs) And uh, the only legitimate pursuit that's endorsed by the government and the culture is illegitimacy. Which this, runs at 80% in Which some runs city. at 80%. You can, you, as you would expect, this deal is increasingly accepted by girls in this culture. Now, the boys, on the other hand, they grow up, and they don't have any regular paternal discipline. So they, they go to the streets to find their manhood. And sometimes they gravitate into crime because uh, violence is exciting and violence accords with the greater strength of young boys, their energies, their aggressions, find some kind of fulfillment in uh, being a criminal. Or uh, they turn to drugs sometimes, which offers uh, immediate intense gratifications. Or uh, they may be captured by the very patriarchal religions that tend to succeed in the inner city. All right, George, I want to kind of turn a corner again and ask you about something that really fascinates me, and I want to get your perspective on it. If you sit down and you interview a thousand women, married women, about their relationships with their husbands, and you start talking to them about what frustrates them the most, uh, the areas of greatest antagonism and their wish list, the things that they wish were there in the relationship that are not there. You will typically hear um, complaints about the lack of softness in a man, uh, that 
maybe the more feminine side to him. Uh, he doesn't talk to me. Uh, I can't get through his outer shell. He doesn't seem concerned about the things I'm concerned about. The romantic side of the relationship isn't important to him. Uh, he's preoccupied with his work. Uh, sometimes I don't think he knows the kids' names. Uh, <laughs> you know, there is, a, yeah. there is a frustration on women that men are not more like them than they are. You're saying that they shouldn't be more like women than they are. They shouldn't. That softer side is not necessarily the target. We don't want to feminize men. How can we bring the sexes together without compromising a man, what he was made to be by God, uh, who he is uh, anatomically and biologically, and yet link him up with the sexes uh, in a way that's harmonious? Well, I believe... Well, that a great question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that impressed me. <laughs> Tell him what I said, George. No, a terrific question. Uh, the answer is that men are truly confident in their role, who are confident and as providers and protectors for their family who feel needed and loved by their family, find it much easier to be tender and nurturant than men who somehow feel threatened all the time. And it's the men who feel threatened, who feel that perhaps the welfare state, for example, that welfare actually could support this woman as well as he can. Uh, or the man who feels he can't quite make it at his job. It, it, supporting the family is uh, very difficult, and he uh, may soon lose his job. You know, he feels threatened. And uh, when masculinity is threatened, it tends to retreat to the shell, as you describe it. Mm -hmm. And then the woman tries to uh, replace the man in some sense, and uh, then you have uh, them fighting each other, yeah. and, and you have all the conflicts and frictions that so often lead to divorces in contemporary life. Okay, George, I want to turn a corner and talk to you about another aspect of your book, Men and Marriage, that fascinates me, and that is the cultural attempt now to feminize men and masculinize women, where you have women busily taking karate and having rap sessions on rape. And uh, it, as a matter of fact, uh, in my book, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women, page 140, I described the attempt of the media to masculinize women and feminize men and uh, see what you think about this paragraph. The image of women now being depicted by the media is a ridiculous combination of wide-eyed fantasy and feminist propaganda. Today's woman is always shown as gorgeous, of course, but she's more, much more. She roars around the countryside in a racy sports car while her male companion sits on the other side of the front seat, anxiously biting his nails. She exudes self-confidence from the very tips of her fingers, and for good reason. She could dismantle any man alive with her karate chops and flying kicks to the teeth. She is deadly accurate with a pistol, and she plays tennis or football like a pro. She speaks in perfectly organized sentences as though her spontaneous remarks were being planned and written by a team of tiny English professors sitting in the back of her pretty head. She's a sexual gourmet, to be sure, but she wouldn't be caught dead in a wedding ceremony. She has the grand good fortune of being perpetually young. She never becomes ill, nor does she ever make a mistake or appear foolish. In short, she is virtually omniscient, except for a curious inability to do anything traditionally feminine, such as cook, sew, or raise children. 
Truly, today's screen heroine is a remarkable specimen, standing proud and uncompromising with a wide stance and hands-on hips. Oh, yeah, this baby has come a long, long way, no doubt about that. Have you seen that trend in the media? Pure media fantasy. I mean, it's it's, uh, even more of a fantasy than similar male fantasies that uh, are found throughout the media. And it's more destructive because it implicitly says that women can only be really fulfilled if they become men. And uh, this is the paradox of the women's movement. Uh, Nothing makes them more angry in my book than my assertion that women are sexually superior and that their role in the family is central to all civilized life. They're enraged when I say women are sexually superior because they've devoted all their lives to becoming men Mm. and emulating men. But of course, they never can become men. And since they never can become men, they end up bitter and frustrated in this pursuit. And so by pursuing a false ideal conveyed by the media, they betray their inner natures as women and uh, end up often being very unhappy in their lives. What happens when men try to become like women? You know, there's a great emphasis now on men being able to cry. You hear both sides of the political spectrum talking about that one, and there is a place for it. And I have a tender side to me, and often when Shirley and I pray together, uh, especially about our children, uh, the tears come to my eyes. They do at this moment. Uh, So there's nothing wrong with men crying. But there is something wrong, it seems to me, with the attempt to make men so sensitive that the, the strength associated with masculinity is watered down. Boy, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Do you understand what I mean? Absolutely. You're certainly right. I mean, uh, the society depends on having two sexes. And uh, men will play the more disciplinary, forceful role, which accords with their very biological and psychological natures. And uh, the woman will play a more nurturant uh, role with regard to children and will tend to uphold the moral order which originates with the woman with the child at her breast. That is the essential image at the foundation of the moral order. It's the value of the particular individual child, the really sacred and inviolable nature of human life is understood instinctively by women with children. And men have to be taught it by women. Men don't have this kind of spontaneous response to uh, infants that women do. and Now, they, they should. They should become nurturing to children. Children need nurturing fathers. You're not opposed to that. Yes, I am. Uh, ch- children uh, need fathers who are fathers and who play the male role in the household, who offer the tough love that you've long celebrated. They need real fathers. They don't need two mothers. They need, you can be nurturing they need fa- without being a mother, though. That's yeah. right. Except uh, what happens is that uh, the feminists confuse the language yeah. to such an extent that it's impossible to really differentiate roles anymore. And uh, you end up, by using their terminology, you implicitly sort of accept their values. You know, there, there aren't fathers and mothers. There's just parenting. Uh, there's uh, not a difference between the two sexes and their relation to children. They're the same. And in effect, the whole family turns into a bowl of mush. 
and pretty soon uh, both sexes try to get out of the mush and, and you have a divorce. And, and that's what happens with these families where the roles disappear. You have enormous incidents of divorces. There has long been a dream of feminists that men would share the child-rearing responsibilities equally and stay home with children as much as women do. It has not happened. Uh, you would uh, take the position, I'm sure, that it will never happen because it contradicts uh, something deep within that aggressive spirit that sends a man out to conquer the world. Right. I think it, it never will happen. And it's insulting to both men and women because the real implication is that uh, the work of the world can be done part time and that uh, the work of the family is also sort of a part time job. And the man's role is very difficult. The provider protector role is hard and it requires tough love. And uh, the mother's role is also very difficult and requires full-time commitment. So this idea that uh, you can raise children part-time and, and sort of move in and out of the workforce as you wish is just a complete illusion. It leads to economic failure and uh, family breakdown. And that's indeed what we find when this kind of uh, pattern is pursued. Uh, what would you say, George, to the men who are listening to us? We have a, a surprising number of men who do listen to us on the way to work in the morning or whenever. Uh, what, uh, what advice do you have to them in role identity in uh, especially a Christian context of caring for their families, being sensitive to their mm. wives and their children, wanting to give their children of, of themselves more mm. than provision and protection. I believe we're called upon for spiritual leadership and other things. Mm. So how do they find that, that masculinity that you're talking about that's different in every context from the feminine role and yet keep themselves sensitive to that other side of themselves? Well, I don't think there's a great conflict. I think uh, men who are confident in their roles as men, as fathers, uh, will spontaneously be loving to their children. They will respond to their children sensitively. They will respond to their wives' needs. When uh, problems arise is when they get all ambivalent and conflicted about being men. And uh, they have to understand their first role is to support the family and, that, and to lead the family. And this is uh, biblical and it's practical. And the woman really wants it, even when she denies it. She really wants the man to uh, provide for the family and in some sense lead it. In all societies, you know, you often hear people talk about matriarchal societies. Well, there's never been a matriarchal society. It's a pure myth. Uh, there are some societies which are matrilineal, as they say. That means that uh, things are inherited through the woman's line. But in general, all societies are patriarchal. That is, authority is associated with the man in male-female relations. This ideal of complete equality in this domain just can never be fulfilled. And for men to try to fulfill it is to betray their very nature as men and also to betray the real desires of their wives because their wives are necessarily dominant in the home. They are sexually superior. The woman's role with the children is indispensable, crucial, and undeniable. So 
the man who gives up his role as external leader of the family, as essential supporter of the family, ends up becoming uh, contemptible in a way. His, his, his wife doesn't really respect him, even though she may say that that's what she wants. It just is not true that um, men can give up the provider role. It's necessary for men to really work hard, to commit their lives to very hard toil. And it's very gratifying when, in exchange for this toil, they gain access to this special circle of moral and spiritual peace and prosperity that the family can be and when it's working and and which the mother necessarily maintains i mean that she will necessarily be the central figure in maintaining this home environment and your apprehensions about the future of the family as spelled out in sexual suicide in 1973 and men in marriage now uh, is pretty ominous. That is very ominous, but I also see a counter movement led by people like yourself across this country to reestablish the family in the center of American life. And I think that movement will prevail because it's based on God's truth and God's truth will triumph. George, anytime you're within 500 miles of here, you come by and see us, will you? I'd love to. I'll work you half to death. (laughs) God bless you, friend. Thank you so much. 